Uh, if you've got your Bibles, please um, get them out, uh, hold them in your hand. Um, and we're reading today from uh, Philippians 3, verse 12, uh, right through to Philippians 4, verse 1. <clears throat> Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what's ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. This is the word of the Lord. Is that what I say? This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, cool. Sorry, I just for a moment couldn't remember what it was. Um, it was October of 2011, and a young man sat with his friend. He was white baiting uh, in, a, in the Waikato. Um, he wore gumboots and sat on a deck chair, and he watched as the white bait ran into his net. He had had a recent um, change. Uh, in his work circumstances, and he was enjoying some time off. And on this day, the, the white bait were really running. It was going really well, and so when his phone rang, he ignored it. He didn't recognize the number, and so he didn't think too much of it. The phone rang again, and he still ignored it, and a third time it rang. He didn't realize it was history calling. On the other end of that phone uh, was Sir Graham Henry, and he was telling him, Mate, get on up here. The All Blacks were in trouble. And so Stephen Donald kicked off his red bands, picked up his footy boots and got his way up to Auckland where the Rugby World Cup was taking place. You see, during training, the legendary uh, first five, Dan Carter had suffered a terrible injury. And Colin Slade had put on the number 10 jersey, but then against Canada, he had injured himself. And so uh, it was a terrible time for the All Blacks. Um, Stephen Donald was needed as a backup just in case, just in case Aaron Cruden was injured, which is exactly what happened. Uh, in the grand final against France, um, the World Cup final, the final we hadn't won since 1987, uh, Aaron Cruden hyperextended his knee. And so Stephen Donald was told to get warm and get on the, the, the pitch. I don't know if you can remember this moment, uh, but he'd pulled on an all-black jersey that looked far too tight for him, uh, rode up far too tight, but he strode forth onto that pitch. 
And then in, with about 26 minutes to go, there was a penalty against the French. And he strode up to that, uh, to that ball and he took the kick. It went over. He slotted it, took the All Blacks into the lead, 8-7. For about 25 minutes of that game, they held on. The All Blacks desperately held on and it turned out that that penalty kick by Stephen Donald was the moment. Was the, was the kick that won the All Blacks the grand final, the World Cup. Just a few days prior, he'd been white-baiting. A few days prior, history had called. He'd taken the call and he'd made his way into the, into the record books. It's a beautiful story, I think, of complete status change. And it's a story, I think, that most of us feel in our hearts and many of us probably somehow hope for that, that phone call ourselves. And by the way, those of you who are supporters of uh, the All Blacks, tough luck. Uh, and those of you who are supporters of the Springboks, uh, which is quite a few of you, well done, yeah. Quite a few of you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, we love you too. Um, anyway, the story of the Christian church somehow resonates a bit with this story. God looks down, he seems to choose random people um, and puts them together into the greatest team in history. Uh, It's bananas, but it's the story of the church. And it's a a church where for some reason God has chosen the author of our book, Paul. God says, for some reason, I'm going to use Paul. And there's a sense of glee, I think, and excitement as God says that over our lives. As I've prepared this, I've been saying to myself, I'm going to choose Luke. And I've been thinking and imagining because it's actually such an exciting thing to think that God chooses us. So let's look at verses 4, uh, sorry, verses 3, chapter 3, 12 to 14. Not that I've already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Uh, Paul says, not that I've already obtained this. Not that he's already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I think of the way Stephen Donald strides forth to take that kick, and I think of the way Paul strides forth uh, in these Gospels, uh, in these, in these um, passages. Uh, he talks about um, how he is pressing on. Paul spent a whole part of the the previous section of scriptures talking about how prior to being called by by Jesus into the the church and uh, into um, life as a Christian, he was actually a religious um, Pharisee and he spent a lot of his time pursuing Christians, hunting them down, chasing them. And it's really interesting. Um, The word that that is used for pursuing Christians is this word, diorko, Yep, no, I'm going to just be confident about that's how it's said. Um, no, I don't think there's any ancient Greek speakers in here. Um, but that, that word means he hunted them, he went after them, he pursued them. And it's the same word that is used when he says Paul presses on. Um, it's the verb diokul, again. So um, God spins them around 180 degrees. But Paul's still a chaser, right? He's still a hunter and he still pursues the purposes of God. He still presses on, he still chases after it. I love that. It's just such a powerful story of redemption. Paul's life was disrupted by a God who 
intercepts his life nothing uh, through nothing but, but miracle grace. It's in Acts chapter 8 that this happens, and um, Paul's traveling on his way to Damascus, and again, he's on his way to do his job, which at that point in his life, his, his job, his business card said, um, you know, Paul, hunter of Christians. That was what he was up to. He was going there to try and persecute the church, to try and take out this early fledgling church. And God intercepts his life. It's crazy. There's like this blinding light. Everyone runs away and Paul's left there, like literally blind. Uh, and, he, and he says, Lord, who is it? Now for a Pharisee, you don't just say Lord to anyone. But at that point, the power of God and the, uh, and the person who had turned up to, to change his life, Paul just wanted to know, who are you? Lord, who are you? I love that. I just love that, that this man, Paul, changes from that point. That God's family is built with people who have just been impacted by these beautiful works of grace. God picks Paul. And, and I feel this energy throughout the rest of this, uh, this, this book of Philippians. Paul just saying, God picked me. There's an enthusiasm and an excitement and a joy. So many times throughout this book, he says, rejoice, rejoice, take joy, rejoice. I'm inspired by the joy that flows through Paul as he writes these things. And I don't know why God picks us. I don't get it. I don't know why God builds his kingdom from such unlikely people, but he continues to. And we're in this room today, unlikely people that God chooses by his grace. Miracle work in grace. I'm so thankful for it. I imagine the angels have a difficult time keeping up. I feel like in my head, the angels do all the admin stuff, right? And so I imagine these sorts of conversations when you read the Gospels that when God says stuff like, you know, the different people he picks. I imagine the angels going, okay, sorry, yes, yep, sure. You want to use Peter? I call, he's from a nice family. That's great. Yeah, oh, yeah, he's a very good husband, lives in a nice area. Good choice. Oh, sorry, not that Peter. You want the fisherman, the one with the anger problem. Okay, sure, okay. And so what, what, what task do you have for him, right? Oh, you're going to build the church with him, okay? Good one. Okay, who's next? John. Ah, oh, the lawyer. Good, he's got a high place in the synagogue. He's well-liked, he's loved and respected. Not that John. Sorry, John, the desert. The one who eats locusts. Do you know what I mean? And then we've got Lazarus. Sorry, you want Lazarus? You mean the lawyer? Oh, not that Lazarus. Sorry, the, the brother of Martha. Okay, sorry. Actually, no, we don't have... Oh, the brother of Martha. Oh, yes... Oh, no, you can't have him. He's dead. Okay, you still want to use him. Okay. So there's something powerful about the people that God chooses. And it says in 1 Corinthians 1.27 that God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God takes delight in taking the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God even chooses the dead things of this world to show spectacular and beautiful life. So God chose Paul, a pursuer of the church, a pursuer of Christians. And for the rest of Paul's days, he's aflame with this pursuit of God's purposes. 
And so what is this purpose that Paul runs with? Paul says it this way, to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Paul's been purchased. I've been purchased. And so if you, in Philippians 2, Ryan shared beautifully about how Jesus leaves the glory of heaven, pours himself out for you, not grasping for equality with God, but pouring himself out in unequaled, self-sacrificing love. Beautiful love, love that eventually dripped from the wounds and stained the ground of this earth red. So this earth has been red, stained red with the blood of heaven. And if anything says to you, you're not good enough for the love of God, it's that blood that says, no, you are good enough. You are good enough. So you've been purchased I don't know who I'm speaking to now, but I I really think that you need to know that. There's been a payment for you. You are good enough. You've been purchased. So what is the the purpose behind this purchase? Verse 13 we read, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The purpose, to win the prize for which God calls me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Which doesn't really clear things up because it, it, I'm still not quite, um, it's not incredibly clear what this means except for these two things. Last week, Sam tapped into the prime, uh, that, that it primarily means straining forwards towards the resurrected future uh, that we have in Jesus, the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection. But also we can see that that resurrection life in the future is also transformational life in the present. Um, Paul is answering the call to a transformational life in the present, a Jesus mindset that's embodied and lived out here. The more mature Paul gets, the more he wants to give his life away. It's beautiful. It's what Ryan talks about when he talks about a Christological phrenesis. It's that idea of living as Jesus lived, not holding on to the things we have, but, but the more we become mature, the more we give our lives away. It's cruciform living, that beautiful word that means shaped like the cross. We love because God first loves us. We love because for some reason God says, I pick Luke, or I pick Nick, or I pick Beth. There's a love that that God uses, and for some reason, uh, we don't know why, we get picked. And that means like Paul, we continue to strain. We pour our lives out for others because he poured his life out for us. I love Paul's image of a race. Matty was in a race yesterday. Well done, Matt. Finished a half marathon. Good job. Um, Paul's race is um, its not a race for human glory. It's a race that is fueled by God's love. And those who are mature in their faith continue with a deep desire to serve others more deeply. The more our lives are cruciform or centered around, or pour, around the poured out love of God, the more we discover this purpose 
pouring our lives out for others. I love how N.T. Wright says it. Uh, all Paul's efforts, there he is. He's not really there, guys, just a photo. Um, all Paul's efforts after holiness, after the work of the gospel, after the eventual goal of resurrection are not a matter of his unaided effort to do something that will make God pleased with him. We're not working to make God pleased with us. They all take place within a context of God's grace. King Jesus has grasped hold of, of Paul and all that he now does is a matter of responding in love to that firm hand on the shoulder. I love that. I love that Paul never loses sight of the finish line as well. And here's an interesting thought for us. Where is our finish line? Where have we oriented our hearts? What is the end goal for us? Because if we don't know where our finish line is, we're possibly not running the race in the right direction. Did you have any issues with marshals yesterday, Matt? No, all right. But it can happen where in those longer races, people drift off the course and, and do a good two or three Ks before realizing they're not on the right course. You've got to know where your finish line is. And is your finish line a life that's poured out in love for others? Or is it a life where you get everything you can for yourself, accumulating as much stuff before we die? There's a very different pattern that Paul sets for us, that Paul looks to when he looks to the pattern of Jesus, a life poured out. So a successful life is a life given away. So yeah, this is, this is what we call the cruciform life uh, that Philippians 2 talks about. And I want you to hold on to that thought as we go into verse 15. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. This phrase, take such a view, yep, it's that phrase for neon, that Christological phrenesis word. Right, So in Philippians 1 verse 7, make my joy complete by being like-minded. In verse, uh, chapter 2 verse 2, all of us should have the same mindset. And so Paul is banging that same drum again, take such a view. It means thinking and feeling and acting. Uh, it's a mindset, it's like a truth, a feeling, a sentiment, but it's practically lived out. It's a lifestyle. Um, it's kind of like Jesus' words of the way, the truth, and the life, that embodied uh, reality. And it's not just now, like it's, it's not just a past work. It's not what God just initiated when, he, when we maybe made that decision that, yeah, I'm going hundies for Jesus. I'm, I'm going to go full sin for Jesus and, re- and receive him as Lord of my life. So it's not just a present work, what God's doing at the moment. Um, I mean, it's, it's that as well. And it's a future hope. So it's all three, way, truth, life, present, past, future. It's like a good news sandwich, fam. It's like insane. It's very, very cool. It's way better than KFC. KFC decided to make a burger where they use the patty, like the the double down. You know what I'm saying? This is better, right? This is like a triple down, guys. Um, Also with the three-dimensional time dimension, right? So it's good. So to modern ears, Paul's statement that those who are mature should take such a view of things, it, it might strike, uh, um, it, it might sort of strike us as a bit manipulative. Uh, we used to, like some people used to say so, these sorts of things in a church that Charlotte and I went to. It was a bit creepy. They'd be like, 
if you're sensitive to the spirit, you'll know that this is what's happening. And it could sound a bit manipulative. Um, and also this bit, if you think differently, God too will make that clear to you. So like for some of us who might have had some bumps and bruises from church, we might react to that sort of authority or that sort of thing. And it's worth pausing actually, because I think Paul calls us into um, community life in a second. And so if for you, um, you're cynical around some of those abuses of power structures and nervous around organisations and even stuff within church, I understand. Uh, Christians can be weird and, and we're not finished, right? And so there are times, and like for me and Charlotte, we've been a bit hurt by this stuff. We were in a church where uh, people were quite okay with speaking on behalf of God and, and often they weren't. Uh, but if you questioned or disagreed with it, um, you were treated pretty sus. Uh, I remember once a guy told us uh, from the microphone that um, Christians, I'm oh, sorry, that, that the husbands weren't being very good to their wives in the church and therefore the wives should separate from them. And quite a few of our friends did this and Charlotte and I were like, no, we're good, we're okay. But we were treated a little bit like, hey, you guys haven't actually been, you know, you've not, like this is, like it was, it was, it was not healthy. We hadn't gone along with the crowd and we were treated with a bit of the old side eye. And that's one example. But I know for a few of you guys that you've probably had similar experiences where church hasn't been healing but hurtful. And to disagree with leaders was seen as disagreeing with God. Perhaps like we were, the church hasn't been a place of healing. It's been a place where you've been hurt. You're reluctant to trust again. But is this what Paul's saying? My way or the highway? Are we meant to just go along with whatever we've been taught? I think Paul's saying something different. I think, regardless of opinion, I think Paul's saying, hey, look, it's our lives that count. Verse 16 says, only let us live up to what we've already attained. And I think a lived life is Paul's trump card. And he's just given us his biography. And I think that's where the most potent argument lies for what Paul is going to establish as a lifestyle of being a friend of the cross. Because Paul just goes and has talked about his life being marked and shaped by the cross. And remember, these are people he's appealing to both as a leader and as a friend. He loves this church. In chapter 3, Paul establishes that all his past belongs to Jesus, and he compiles a list of all the things that makes him qualified in a religious sense and then he takes the CV and he treats it like toilet paper. But what about the present? In chapter 3, verse 10, he says, All I want to do, I just want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And then just as we've read, he's got his future hope that somehow he's going to press on and take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of him. He's a friend of the cross through and through. He just wants to carry out that purpose that he's been purchased for. He just wants to take hold of that for which he's already attained, grasp what has been grasped. And I think you can just hear a sense of wonder and gratitude through the words of this amazing man. Wow, God chose me. That's awesome. I just want to live this out. I just want to do my bit. I just want to imitate him. I just want to live a life that looks a bit like Jesus. He is an old man by this stage. 
but he's incredibly joyful. On his back, he has nearly 200 um, scars from beatings. He's got teeth knocked out, I imagine, but still through those gaps, he's smiling in joy. His eyes are going bad, but he's still got a twinkle in them and he can still see enough to run the race. He can still see enough to say, I want to strain forwards. And he's got a heart that's filled with the love and the joy and the hope. So he's not a power tripper saying, my way or the highway. He's a friend of the cross. And I think I don't have an issue with him saying, if you think differently, God will make, if you think differently, God will make it clear. I don't think there's ego there. I think his boasting throughout this book is in the cross. And I think if we disagree, I think we're not fighting him. I think we end up fighting God. And I think it's a strong word to all of us. If our version of Christianity does not look like the cruciform, poured out life of Jesus. I think God will help us figure it out until it is. I think Paul through these passages is saying, be a friend of the cross. And so that makes sense going forwards into the future verses. Hold that idea of being a friend of the cross. Uh, Verse 17, join with others in following my example. My brothers uh, and sisters, and take note of those who live, uh, sorry, Brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model or a pattern, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Um, this word join together and following my example uh, is a word that Paul just makes up here. This is just the one time he uses it. It's the one time anyone uses it in ancient literature. He's just jammed together two words. One is sum, which means, you know, like adding up numbers. Um, and then the other one is like mime. You know, which is, you guys know what I mean. So one is joined together, the others imitate. He just wedges them together into, into one word. It's called a neologism. It's cool. And there's different ways that different languages do this. They have a similar word in te reo Māori, uh, which is mahi-tahi, where you jam together mahi, work, and tahi, one, and you get a really cool word, Right? And so for us going forwards, what's this mean? It means join together in imitation of Christ. I think that's beautiful. Christian life is about community. And community can push on us and jar on us and poke at our pride. And particularly for me, it's pride. Uh, Colossians 5, have we got this verse from on? I can't remember if I put it in there. Um, Sorry, Galatians 5 makes it very clear. Since we live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become proud or conceited, provoking and envying one another. Keeping in step with the Spirit means keeping in step with each other. And that requires us to walk in humility, not being proud. And I think that's why the church is called to live out this discipline of community. It keeps us humble. I think it's beautiful. As a bit of an aside, I really hate action songs. Do you know what I mean? I'm really, really bad at them. I really struggle to go in the right direction. I feel awkward and embarrassed. Um, once Jen asked me if I wanted to, to do Zumba. And I like faked a muscle injury. So she's like, oh, you should come to Pilates. So then I faked my own death. I, and I can't do Kapahaka. I want to, and I've tried, and I'm really enthusiastic, but inevitably, someone looks over who's doing it really well, 
and then they can't do it anymore because they're laughing so hard. Apparently, I look like a cat that's just been startled. Like, so, but when I see kids doing kapahaka, like, I'm amazed. I remember about 15 years ago when I first started teaching, I had a real hard time with this kid. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't an easy kid, didn't find, it didn't find my English classes engaging, so his problem, clearly, right? And just wasn't interested, seemed to have a bad attitude, and I was like, oh, this guy. And then I saw him on stage doing his kapahaka performance. You know, there was something like, something beautiful, just a mana to what he was doing. There was a sense of community and pride and strength and passion. All of the things that, um, that you'd want for a young man. And like, I feel like there's something of that that's in this, this idea of mahitahi, this idea of, you know, like a group performance like that doesn't minimize the performance of a, of a single individual. It doesn't make the individual seem small. It brings out their best qualities. And I feel like the church is called to unite and to imitate in the same way. So he, called, he goes on to write, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So Paul is saying this, hey, look at us older Christians, but look at those of us who live a life that's modeled after the pattern of Jesus. So guys, we've got to seek out mentors and show wisdom with our friends and those who influence us. And I know for, uh, for us, we're so blessed to have people in this church who have gone around the block a few more times than we have. We're just the other day, we were listening to Robert share about his retirement and how he's on his spin cycle listening to Lectio 365. It was really inspiring for us guys. You know, there's different people in this church who inspire and encourage me. Like I love Elsa's like lovely, beautiful, childlike joy that she has in just everyday things. There's so many of you that inspire me. I love Lloyd's heart for the lost and the heart for the people who are on the outskirts. There's so many people in this church who um, who I see moments in their lives, I'm just like, I want to imitate that. I love Terry's humility. Paul says this, keep your eyes on those who live as we live. Look out for that example. Keep your eyes out for cruciform love. Keep your eyes on those who are friends of the cross. We're into verse 18 now. For as I've told you often before and tell you now, even again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. So we know what a friend of the cross looks like. Paul tells us that a friend of the cross has their destiny as resurrection and they get a foretaste of that life in the here and now. But an enemy of the cross, Paul's saying here, tells us their destiny is destruction. Romans says this, the wages of sin is death. Sin leads to death. And the friend of the cross serves God with their body and all their flesh, their appetites, all of it, their food, their sexuality, their sleep, their words, all of their earthly habits. But the enemy of the cross has their stomach or their, their appetites as their God. The friend of the cross glories in God. And finds ultimate satisfaction in him. The enemy of the cross glories in their shame and their shameful behaviors. The friend of the cross, like Paul, has his mind set on the great finish line and the thunderous applause from a loving God. The enemy of the cross has his mind set on earthly things. So I've told you, and Paul tells us what a friend of the cross is like. 
I want to quickly just backtrack and, and show you what a friend of the cross looks like here in verse 18. He's telling us this with tears. There's a sadness to him as he talks about this. There's a heart that's broken for people yet to find the love of God. Three times in chapter 1, he tells us to rejoice and to have joy. Four times in chapter 2, he tells us the same thing. Once so far in this chapter, and then twice furthermore in chapter 4. Have joy, rejoice, be joyful. But here we see him with tears in his eyes over those who are living as enemies of the cross. If you're a friend of the cross, your heart is broken for the world. You're not mean. So right now, if I gave you that list and you have heard yourself described and think, maybe I'm more like an enemy of the cross rather than a friend, may you know God's grace. God wants you to turn from ways that that result in death and to make you a friend. And know this, Paul weeps because God weeps. There's a Father in heaven who longs for your return and he does so with tears. That's what our God looks like. Paul longs that people would know Jesus. He goes on, Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our, bod- our lowly bodies so that it will be like his glorious body. So I started this sermon by sharing about Stephen Donald. A man called out of white baiting and obscurity to kick the winning penalty in the Rugby World Cup for the All Blacks. And that dream, I think, lands for all of us. It sticks to something in our hearts. The idea that one day out of the ordinary world we live in, we might receive a phone call that would summon us to greatness and glory. The crowds shouting your name, the teammates slapping your shoulders, the knowledge that you'd done something incredible and that you would be remembered. But I want to offer you something better this morning. Run the race for Jesus. Paul calls the Philippians his crown and joy and his cross-shaped heart sees them as part of the prize to look forward to as he finishes his race. They are part of the purpose for his purchase. For some of you, this is a call this morning to step up into a renewed, um, into a renewed pursuit of God. Answer the call. Take the call. This is an adventure, and, it, and it's better than the All Blacks and hearing 60,000 fans. It's the thunderous sound of God's love beating in your heart. I want to look at this quickly with you. James K.A. Smith talks about how our hearts are wired, and he asks this penetrating question. What if you're wired not to be liked by the many, but to be loved? Sorry, what if, you're not, what if you're wired not to be liked but to be loved and not by many but by one? Man, that gets me. There's so many things I do, I, I'm thinking of how I want to be liked by many. We're not wired to be liked by many, but we are wired to be loved by the one. And this changes everything. And I think Paul runs with such a holy abandon and a ferocious joy and an ambition that leaks out of his scarred body because he's found that one love that is worth everything, and he runs to take hold. 
And he's not running for the many. We're not wired to be liked by the many. We're wired to be loved by the one. I think that's what compels Paul forwards. He's got a life marked and changed and formed to look like the beautiful act of the cross. And Paul can do this because he knows who God is. It's in this identity that he's able to write with such holy momentum. It's for the love of God. That means he's running a race with a stadium of one. Six million people watched that grand final. But I kind of get the feeling that Paul's race is more important and more epic and more exciting because he's running for, again, that thunderous applause of the love of God. Let us live up to that which we've already attained. He's not trying to earn the love of God. He's running the race, again, with a smile on that toothy face and that joy in his heart because God chose him. He knows that God's not opposed to effort. He's opposed to earning. You can never earn your way into uh, the good books for God. But we can respond to God's beautiful grace. And Paul's calling us to unite and to follow his example and to do that. Look, I don't want to be too heavy this morning. You can rest in the love of God. There is rest there. But you can still press on. This beautiful quote has been um, popping around in our family this week, and it's lovely. Let's look at this one. This is James K.A. Smith again. Resting in the love of God doesn't squelch ambition. It fuels it with a different fire. I don't have to strive to get God to love me. Rather, because God loves me unconditionally, I'm free to take risks and launch out into the deep. I'm released to aspire to use my gifts and gratitude, caught up in God's mission for the sake of the world. When you're found, you're free to fail. So be free today to live out God's rich and creative plans for your life. I want to finish my sermon in the same way that Paul ends this section with a call to stand firm in this way. Let's stand, guys. So Paul finishes by saying, Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Stand firm.